Well, today we're back on track. We're in the middle of a series of messages that we've entitled, Scary Families, Taking the Fright Out of Family Life. As we've learned, when a dad throws his family under the bus, or when there's no leadership in the home and the patients take over the asylum, or when a family begins to play favorites, family dynamics grow dangerous. People can get hurt. Family life can get scary. You know, the Bible is full of scary family moments. But none more so than the morning after Jacob's wedding. You remember the story? Jacob had stood in the altar. He had taken solemn vows. He loved the beautiful Rachel. He had been smitten with her from the moment he laid eyes on her. He had signed up until death do us part. He took her to bed that night and helped her out of her wedding attire. It was customary for brides to wear heavy, full-body veils. I'm sure that fireworks followed. But the first crack of dawn brought one of the scariest moments a newlywed can imagine. Jake rolls over to the woman next to him in horror of all horrors. His wedding night has suddenly become a nightmare. It wasn't his beloved Rachel after all. It was her ugly sister Leah. She could double as a beaver she was so ugly. Leah was as ugly as a monkey's armpit she was. You see, it was protocol in the ancient world for the elder daughter to marry before the younger. Jacob had been double-crossed. His father-in-law had pulled the old switcheroo. And I'll bet there are a lot of couples who at some point in their marriage awake to the same scary realization. Hopefully it didn't happen the day after your wedding, but it could have. You realize that your spouse was not what you thought he or she was. That you'd been double-crossed. That someone had pulled the old switcheroo on you. Where's that sweet, submissive girl I thought was behind the wedding veil? I thought I was marrying Mr. Wright. I didn't know his first name was always. <laughs> and all of a sudden, family life can get very scary. You see, when the honeymoon turns into a full moon, and the monster side of your spouse comes out, it can get scary. I mean eerie. I mean spooky. All families have their scary moments. This morning, I want to talk to you about phony families. You could title this morning's study, Meet the Fakers. Trust me, when everybody in the family buys into the lie and starts to cover up, when they refuse to be honest and tell the truth, family life can get very, very scary. As we've done each week in this series, I, I want to warm you up with a few photos to kind of get you in the mood for scary families. I know most of you live in such a warm, loving, caring family. You can't even relate to scary families. So I need to get you in the mood a little bit. So I've got a few pictures for you. Here's picture number one. This is the epitome of a family in denial. I mean, their house is on fire, their domicile is turning into charred embers while they're posing, smiling for the camera. 
Here's a family that needs some help in dealing with reality. Photo number two is really scary. Here's a family with something to hide. And in their case, it might be a good thing. What is this knucklehead dad thinking? I mean, it would serve him right if a spark flew out of the old fireplace there and burned him on the tush. I'm telling you, this dad makes this a scary family. Photo number three is in honor of Mother's Day. How about a scary mom? Yeah, there she is. Hey, nothing speaks of a mother's love more than a watermelon and a hand grenade or a handgun. You really got to wonder, what in the world is the story behind this picture? I've heard of mom, apple pie, and baseball, but mom, watermelon, and a 45? I mean, this is really scary. Lastly, photo number four, the Gary Boosie family. <laughs> and of course, they all look like Gary, man. This is scary, scary Gary. Actor Gary always plays the creepy character. I mean, a family of Boosies is very, very scary. But this is all a good lead-in into this morning study. We're talking about families who pretend, who put up a facade, who, like Leah, hide behind a veil. They make you think there's something that they're not. Here in Acts chapter 5, we find the quintessential example of a phony family, Ananias and Sapphira. You might say, this couple was just dying to get into their Bible. Chapter 5 begins, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. Now here was the all-American couple living in Jerusalem. In high school, Ananias had been the captain of the football team. Sapphira, I'm sure, had been the homecoming queen. The couple got married straight out of college. Beforehand, they were darlings of the youth group. Now they're driving a Mercedes to church. They're dressing in designer jeans. They got a house out in the burbs. Even host a TBG in their homes on Wednesday nights. My, oh my, Ananias is a candidate for deacon. This storybook couple was the epitome of respectability. They were the poster children for conservative evangelical success. My, they even dabbled in real estate. In fact, over the last several weeks, folks at the church had developed a new seriousness about following Jesus. Even to the point of it lightening their wallet. Their fellow believers, their friends, many of them, were selling off possessions and property. And they were pooling resources. They were going hardcore. And this country club couple, they felt threatened. They were thinking, what happened to moderation? You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they liked playing religion and appearing religious. But all of a sudden, they're surrounded now by real giving and genuine faith and costly commitment. And this is different, man. They start to feel uncomfortable. This was an encroachment on their lifestyle. You see, here was their quandary. In their heart, Ananias and Sapphira weren't ready for such a costly step of faith. Oh, they had faith, but it was growing. It was still a baby faith. Their faith needed more muscle, more daring. But 
They didn't want to look bad. They didn't want to be left out. And to this star-studded couple, image was everything. They just couldn't tolerate appearing unspiritual. So here's what they did. Read with me in verse 2. They sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now realize, God never required the selling of this parcel. Nor did he ask anyone to give the proceeds to the church. What was being done here was strictly voluntary. In fact, neither did God tell Ananias to give all of the proceeds from the sale. I mean, he could have donated just a portion and just said so, been honest about it. It didn't have to be all the money. In fact, Ananias, he could have tithed, just given 10%. You know, said his faith was under construction and in the future he hoped he could give more. But, you know, man, this is all we can give. Candor would have saved his life. Ananias' sin was to give part, yet claim to give all. He lied. And don't ever think that you can lie with impunity. Hypocrisy always gets found out. It's been said there is no such thing as an inconsequential lie. The Holy Spirit is the hound of heaven. He trees the sinner and he sniffs out hypocrisy a mile away. Ananias lied and he gets busted for it in verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? It's a cover-up, Ananias. You're playing a charade. Ananias claimed what he had never intended. You see, his gift was designed to impress people, not please God. Apparently, God could have tolerated Ananias' stinginess. His faith was growing. He could have matured out of his materialistic mindset. But what what God couldn't allow, not for a second, what God couldn't allow to gain a foothold in the church was his hypocrisy. And that's what God dealt with. You see, here were two folks more concerned about looking good than being real. It was style over substance. And to me, this is the blight of the modern church. Here's our problem. Churches today are full of phony families. You see, this is what happens on any given Sunday morning in millions of homes all across our country. This is what happens. A duty-bound wife, she gets up and she starts badgering her husband to go to church. After he's convinced, they both light a fire under their begrudging kids. A fight then breaks out at breakfast. Dad yells at Junior. Mom gets mad at Dad for yelling at Junior. Mom and Dad argue on the drive-in whether they can afford to give a tithe or not. Junior hits Sissy in the back seat. Mom leans over the seat and swats Junior. Dad scolds Mom. I'll handle Junior later. And I mean, it's a mess. Then the car rolls into the church parking lot and the door opens. And all of a sudden, the magic begins. It's amazing. The transformation starts. Mom checks her makeup. Dad, he tucks in his shirt. The kids start spying for their friends. 
And amazingly, by the time they get to the greeter at the door, they now all have this plastered smile all across their face. They're happy as a lark. Ten minutes later, ten minutes previous, they were at each other's throat. They walk into the church. They sit down in a comfortable seat. Now their eyes are closed. Their hands are raised. They're swaying to the music, just worshiping God, shouting His praise, singing glory to God. And as they leave, everyone thinks, what a lovely Christian family. If you had only seen them a few hours earlier, you would have thought, wow, what a scary family. And let me be the first to confess, it's me. Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. I have argued with my wife on Saturday night. I'm talking knockdown, drag out fight when I was mean and ugly and angry. And then I had the nerve to get up the next morning in this pulpit and tell you good folks how to have a good marriage. I've done it. I admit it. Now, it hasn't happened in a while. Matter of fact, a few years. It doesn't happen much these days. For one, I have matured spiritually. But two, for the sake of the ministry, Kathy and I have just decided not to see each other on Saturday night. <laughs> I mean, just in case. And we drive separate cars to church on Sunday morning. It's just a safeguard now. I mean, we don't want to be a phony family. Recently, I read of a new product called Spray-On Mud. It's a big hit in England where there is little real mud. When an image-conscious dude buys a nice new 4x4 SUV, I mean, he wants people to think that he's using this high-performance vehicle for more than just hauling kids to soccer practice and bringing home the groceries. And so he can pop the top on a can of spray-on mud, and he can make his SUV look like it's been off-road for three days, climbing hills, cutting through the wilderness. And you see, this is what Ananias tried to do. He popped the top on some spray-on devotion, some pretend faith. He covered his family in what looked like real sacrifice. Now, every believer gets tempted with this. You know, every one of us gets tempted to inflate our claims and to embellish our testimony. We like seeming more spiritual than we really are. We like that. We talk a degree of devotion we've never known. We vow to give all and then hold some back. And here's what we forget. We tend to forget that God hates fakes. He does. He hates phoniness. Ananias had an image to uphold. The truth about his weakness might cause the church to think less of him. What he should have cared about was God's opinion. In verse 4, Peter grills Ananias. While it remained, was it not your own? I mean, it was your property, Ananias. Your name was on the deed, not God's. And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? The Lord never told you to give this money. This was your own choosing, your own doing. He never required the offering of you. You see, this was all a scheme on Ananias' part to pass off phoniness as true devotion. Peter asks him, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? 
You have not lied to men, but to God. You see, a phony family is an offense to many people. When we pretend to be something that we're not, we water down the commitment level all across the church. We diminish the true sacrifices of others. We breed distrust among the believers. We give a lost world a reason to doubt our sincerity and to question our cause. But worst of all, we offend God the Holy Spirit. Peter tells him, you have not lied to men, but to God. God took Ananias' phoniness very seriously. Verse 5 reads, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. God struck Ananias, seized up his heart perhaps. Ananias took a final gulp of air and he died. And even the staunchest skeptic of the Bible believes in the next verse. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. I'm sure it did. It scared the church spitless. Suddenly God's family was a scary family. Actually, the disciples should have expected as much. While on earth, the one sin that Jesus detested more than any other was hypocrisy. You remember he offered forgiveness and showed compassion to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. But our Lord, he hurled fiery daggers at the hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus contrasts true worship and true prayer and true fasting with phony worship and prayer and fasting. And you know the difference? The difference was simple. The phony variety was intended to be seen by men while the true worship desired only to glorify God. It's the motive that matters. You see, Ananias did a spiritual act for a selfish reason. That was his mistake. He tried to appear spiritual in the eyes of his peers, while in the eyes of God, he was something else. Hey, this is the most insidious of evils. Worse than simply ignoring God is using God for your own enlargement. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus squares off with the kings of phoniness, the Pharisees, and he goes on a tirade. Jesus goes off on them. He calls them every name in the book. He calls them blind guides and fools and sons of hell and you whitewashed tombs and you serpents and you brood of vipers. You need to know then and now Jesus has a very low tolerance for hypocrisy. Understand, in Acts chapter 5, God didn't want to strike down Ananias. He had a love in his heart for Ananias. The man's struggling devotion, his immature faith, the leftovers of his materialism, even the limits on his generosity, they weren't the deal breakers for God. God could have tolerated all of that. Certainly, the Lord wants us to grow spiritually. He wants us to exercise our faith until it becomes rock solid. In fact, it's been said, the biggest room in the world is the room for improvement. Aren't you glad? And we all have room to grow in Christ. You see, God isn't surprised when His children act childish. I love to remember Psalm 103, verse 14. It provides me great encouragement. The psalmist says He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. 
No, you got to know, God threw the switch on Ananias, not because of his immaturity, but because of his hypocrisy. He pretended to be something that he was not. He wasn't honest. Here's a quote that will make you think. We know perfectly well how to be spiritual. It's being human that we have trouble with. Yep. Ananias, he knew how to do spiritual. He could put on an act, man. He knew his way around the church, around religious stuff. He could make you believe that he was a super saint. You see, he was more at ease with appearing spiritual than he was with his own humanity. It's hard to swallow your pride and confess your sins and talk about your weakness and admit your human frailty. Everybody feels more at home on top of a soapbox. But when I start admitting my flaws and my failures, I have to climb down. Suddenly, I'm on equal footing. We're all on equal footing. You see, this is why a proud father never gets honest with his kids. This is why teenagers hide stuff from their parents. This is why husbands and wives refuse to really talk to each other. Instead of honesty and humility, haughtiness causes families to grow phony. Everybody jockeys to gain the upper hand. They want one leg up on everyone else in the family. That's why people mask their flaws and cover up their questionable intentions and try to hide themselves. Families avoid the truth and live a lie. They pretend not to hurt even when they do. They think if they can just deny the pain or avoid talking about their shortcomings long enough, it'll all just go away. I've heard it said, more people would learn from their mistakes if they weren't so busy denying them. It's always good to remember, denial is not just a river in Egypt. Denial. In fact, denial isn't a river at all. In fact, it blocks the flow that we need. What families really need is a river of tears. When was the last time you really shared your heart with members of your family? When is the last time you cried with your family? You really opened up to your spouse. They opened up to you. You shared your heart with your parents. You forgave a sibling. Or they forgave you. And all the pain and the disappointment and the hurt and the heartache flowed out. What a blessing that is. You see, this is what marriages and families need most. They need to love and care again. I've heard it said, tears are a river that takes you somewhere. Tears lift your boat off the rocks, off dry ground, carrying it downriver to someplace better. Tears always take us to someplace better. But if tears don't flow, if a family doesn't put an end to the phoniness, and the lies, and the pretend, and come real, come clean with each other. Just like Ananias, phony families die. Maybe not instantly like Ananias and Sapphira did, but they die a slow, painful death. If you did an autopsy on a phony family, you would find that pride and guilt and hidden sin had eaten them up from the inside. 
You see, for a family to thrive, even survive, they need to come clean and be honest and join together for the common good. True, healthy families maintain an atmosphere of humility and truthfulness and trust in one another. Well, what a day it was. Great fear came upon all. You know, I've heard Christians say that they wish they lived in the days of the early church where they could have seen firsthand the miracles written of in Acts. I'm not so sure. I mean, in the first century, when a hypocrite went to church, he either repented or he went home in a body bag. Of course, this isn't the case in the church today. And I think we all would be glad. In Acts chapter 5, God made a point more so than established a pattern. You see, in the baby church's formative years, while standards for church life and worship were still taking shape, God took serious issue with people who played at religion. He didn't want the posers, folks who claimed to be more than they really were, to become the norm in the church. This is why he took such severe measures in Acts chapter 5. Remember, God hates faking. He hates hypocrisy. Imagine if that were true today, if he worked in today's church the way he did in Acts chapter 5. Imagine a church where you went and they had regular baptisms and communion uh, once a month and then weekly executions. Imagine a church like that. It was obviously not God's intention to deal with all hypocrites the way he dealt with Ananias. And we should all be glad. I mean, I think if God used the same standards with us today, we'd all start breaking out and we'd all start singing, All to Jesus, I surrender. And we'd have people dropping like flies all over the congregation. We'd have to call wages to bring a truck up here and haul off the bodies. Be so many. No, in Acts chapter 5, God makes a point. And it only takes one case, one example, to show his disdain for hypocrisy. As Ananias lies through his teeth, Peter sees straight through him. He asks him, why has Satan filled your heart? Why has Satan filled your heart? Peter realized that Ananias' two-faced devotion, his duplicity, his hypocrisy, was an attack of the devil on the church. Don't you think we're weak today because of hypocrisy? Don't you think that's the greatest blight on the church today? It's hypocrisy. And if God hadn't stamped it out early on, it would have ruined for all time His growing and blossoming church. But the story isn't over. As a matter of fact, the scariness, my friend, is just warming up. For phony families, they don't start out phony. They devolve over time. Key factors enable and add to their phoniness. Notice verse 6. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. I mean, in ancient times and in hot human climates, corpses were disposed of quickly. No need to risk the stench and the disease to spread. In fact, they didn't even take time to notify the next of kin. That's why Ananias' bride, Sapphira, she walks in oblivious to what's just happened to her husband. Verse 7 tells us, now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. I mean, she's late for church. She's strolling. I wonder where my husband is. She's ready to praise Jesus. 
Now, go back to verse 2, and you're going to find a crucial detail that will help us to know what was going on in Sapphira's mind. We're told in verse 2, he kept back part of the proceeds. That was Ananias. His wife, Sapphira, also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Notice this. Sapphira is aware of the scam. She is privy to her husband's hypocrisy. The wording used here is very deliberate. While her man is working the con, even though Sapphira isn't there, she is aware. She is very aware. Notice the author of Acts. He doesn't write, she plotted with him. She may not have. Or she approved. Probably didn't. Or she was in it from the start. That's implying too much. But here's what Sapphira was guilty of. She was aware. And she helped him foster his scheme. She knew her husband was on the verge of spiritual suicide, yet she thought she could help him get away with it unscathed. And so she tried. Oh, she would have told you that she was just loving him. But by not speaking up, by not forcing the issue, she was signing his death certificate and hers. Martin Luther King once said, Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Sapphira will die this day, as did Ananias. They'll both be buried side by side, but deep inside, she started to die when she chose to help her husband carry out this ruse and not stand up for what was right before God. There is a modern word. It's come into usage through AA and through the recovery, uh, addict, the addictive recovery community. It's called codependency. Codependency. This is the idea that the person who lives with the addict, the spouse or the child or the parent or the friend, may act in ways that actually support his dependency. In an effort to gain a degree of normalcy for the family, the family learns ways of coping with the troubled person and with their sin. But the, but the habits often facilitate more of the bad behavior. That's the problem. Here's what codependent people will do. They'll lie for the person in trouble. They'll lie for the person who's living the lie. They'll cover up what he or she did. They'll try to spare the family the embarrassment. They'll make excuses. Oh, they're great at making excuses for the person in trouble. They'll show pity instead of insisting on help. At times, they even stick their head in the sand and they pretend it's all just going to go away on its own. They'll embrace an illusion. There's this very real feeling that they have that if they're not dealing with it at that time, it's not really happening. But that's an illusion. You see, this not only occurs with spouses, but parents are also guilty here. I've seen insecure, unsure parents tiptoe around their out-of-control kid out of a fear of rejection. Like Sapphira, they refuse to confront the real issue that's going on in the life of their child. 
How many parents have failed their adult children by bailing them out of trouble over and over and over again? I know parents who make excuses for their kids' poor behavior, even into adulthood. Parents shelter their kids without realizing the crippling effects that it causes. When a young person never has to face up to the consequences of his foolishness, he never learns discipline and responsibility. Hey, make someone's life easy at every turn and you contribute to their delinquency. Apparently, Sapphira would have rather lied to God than make waves with Ananias. She would have rather lied to God than create friction in her family. And this kind of attitude is scary. You see, a passive, non-confrontational approach makes life easier for you. But trust me, you're not loving the person in trouble. It's not going to help that person at all. We all want to cover up and make excuses and lower our expectations. But God wants to deal with the real issue. Here's another term for Sapphira. She was the classic enabler. You see, rather than confront her husband in love and try to get him help, or rather than go to Peter and the elders with her concerns, she chose to stay quiet and enable Ananias' hypocrisy. That made her complicit. You see, Sapphira chose to be part of the problem instead of part of the solution. And this makes for a scary family. Keep reading verse 8. It shows you how scary it got. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Peter knows the answer. But he's giving Sapphira a chance to come clean. Be honest. Sadly though, she said yes for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately, boom, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. The country club couple gets buried in adjacent plots, side by side. Now we're not told why Sapphira sold out the truth to support Ananias' scheme. We're only left to speculate. Maybe her low self-worth needed to impress him. Maybe she wanted to tell somebody, but Ananias had threatened her. That happens sometimes. Maybe this wasn't the first time that he had played the hypocrite. And she thought that he would get away with it again, especially if she helped him. Maybe she liked the lifestyle that his salary provided. Or maybe she had designs on the money that he had held back from God. Maybe. Or maybe she just had a warped sense of devotion and wanted to stand by her man no matter what. And I understand this thought process. In the church, we teach that a wife should submit to her husband, even in the midst of his mistakes. In fact, in the Bible, Sarah is commended for submitting to Abraham even when he threw her under the bus. I mean, to save his own skin, he let the Pharaoh take her. But Sarah still trusted God to be greater than her husband's blunder. That was commendable. That was faith. 
But you see, there's a fine line between submission to authority and complicity with evil. There's a fine line. Sarah's acceptance represented a trust in God, even in the face of her husband's fears. But Sapphira was not as noble. You see, she agreed to sin. She stepped over her conscience. She threw away her integrity, choices that Sarah didn't make. Sapphira went along with a scheme that was patently hypocritical. There's not a trace of faith in any of her actions. Notice how Peter describes her sin. In verse 9, he says, Sapphira agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, she challenged God's omniscience. She challenged God's very character. The fact she lied to God and thought she could get away with it was a slap in the face to the Holy Spirit. We're at right of a restaurant in New York City that has actually built a business on hypocrisy. Husbands bring their wives to this restaurant. Boyfriends bring their girlfriends. Couples are seated and they're handed a menu. But what the girl doesn't know is that the prices in her menu are triple the cost of the prices in the man's menu. So when he leans in and tells the girl he's trying to impress, oh honey, just order whatever you'd like. It's a trick. It's a ruse. And I'll bet you it's backfired a time or two. I would imagine when a woman learns the news that she's been conned, the relationship can get very, very scary. That's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Their attempt to con God backfired. Guys, hypocrisy will always backfire. Nobody can pull the wool over God's eyes forever. The story closes as it should. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. I mean, after this scary family, the whole church was on its best behavior. Everyone had learned that honesty is the best policy. Have we learned that? I want to close this morning by telling you what Sapphira should have done. When Ananias informed her of his scheme to defraud God and play the poser, Sapphira should have realized that her household was in trouble, that her household was sick, that her husband was infected with sin, that her husband had a fever. And fevers need a physician. I mean, when somebody gets a fever, it's time to take them to the doctor. You can't afford to wait and see if the fever is going to pass, if they're just going to get better on their own. When there's a fever, it's time to act. Your passivity only gives the fever room to grow. You need to get help. Perhaps this is why Peter was so quick to call Sapphira on the carpet. Because you see, he'd been in the exact same situation. Recall Luke chapter 4. His mother-in-law was home with a fever. The original language calls it a mega fever. But what did Peter do? He went right back to that synagogue and he recruited Jesus' help and he brought Jesus all the way to his house to get his help to heal his mother-in-law. That's what Peter did. He reached out for help. You see, the country club couple, they went to church to show off how healthy they appeared. But they had no intention of bringing Jesus anywhere near their household. Why? Because their pride had too much to hide. A fever had taken over, but they weren't honest enough to admit it and to deal with it. 
Phony families eventually die because they never get help. They're too proud. They hide behind a mask. They never go to Jesus and ask for healing. On the other hand, Peter was honest. His family had a fever, and he admitted it. And he brought Jesus home to provide a cure. And I love what Luke writes. Jesus rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. Notice this. The honest family was sick, but they brought Jesus home. And they got healed, and they served. The phony family was sick, but they ignored it. And they went to the church, and they bragged about their service, and pretended they were okay, and they ended up dead. Do you see that? Peter's family was sick. Ananias' family was sick. I hope you realize all families are sick. At least they run a low-grade fever. That's true of your family, and that's true of my family. Here's the difference. One family was honest about it, and they got healed. One family played the hypocrite, and they died. Which family do you want to be? See, there are no perfect people, and that means there are no perfect families. But neither should there be any phony families. For Jesus comes, healing comes, to families that are honest with their problems and seek the Lord for His help. You see, we all belong to families that are under construction. And the more honest we are about it, the sooner and the better that God can complete what He's building for us and building in us.